Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Rabiao He. He's uh, the Fred C. Davidson Distinguished University Chair in Veterinary Medicine and a Georgia Research Alliance Distinguished Investigator. We're going to talk about his work, which we'll get into in a moment. But Biao, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Richard, for having me. If you would, tell me about your current research. What does it involve? I'm a professor in the Department of Infectious Diseases at the University of Georgia's Veterinary College of Veterinary Medicine. So my research is focusing on vaccine development. Okay, I know some common vectors that are used like adenovirus, you know, virion shells and use them to to effectuate vaccines. But what's your methodology of uh, vaccine administration? Yeah, so one of the things that you allow me to tell you the really the reason we started doing what we're doing, which is very different from the, the vector systems such as anovirus based system. So I, I don't know you have pets like cats, etc. If you do, many of you probably have experienced the vaccinating your cats if you do care about them, I, I guess. And because you do want your vaccine and the cats to be vaccinated. And as some of you know, the, when you vaccinate your cats, there are this thing called the injection site associated sarcoma. If it's very real, but it, it does happen. So for cats, you know, sometimes very rarely, it does get this injection, injection site um, sarcoma. So the idea is, of course, we want to get vaccinated because, you know, the, you know, the, like rabies, for instance, is terrible if you don't, right? So what the, the idea is that can we find a way to vaccinate the cats without really doing injection? And I also want to point out, you know, this injection site, the sarcoma only happens in cats, not in dogs, not in humans. So I don't want anti-vaccine people to jump on this to say, you know, this, we don't want to vaccinate. You have to vaccinate your cats and that's good for your cats. Um, but when you do that, there is a very small percentage in, uh, of the cats will get injection site sarcoma. So the idea is, can we oh. get a vaccine? Go ahead. 
Why, these... why do you think that happens? I'm just curious. Oh, sarcoma is a cancer, right? So right. why do you think it happens? So this is so um, one of my colleagues, Dr. Um, Corey Sable, has uh, published a review paper recently on this uh, matter. I think it is maybe a combination of a few things with, with cats and not for other animals. Maybe there are some genetic buildup of the cats, or maybe it's because of the um, overreactive um, nature of a cat immune response in, to injection, etc. So we don't know for sure, but we do know when you inject things into cats, it, at the end, there is a small, very small percentage of cats get in, injection site sarcoma. So the, the idea really for us is, can we develop a vaccine that is not, you do not use injection as, as the way of delivery? So of course, you know, the, the solution for us really is using intranasal because you can drip something into the nose and uh, um, hopefully they will, you know, take and immunize your animal. So it turned out actually in dogs, we do have a vaccine that is delivered in this particular method. So if you have dogs, you know, if you take your dogs to a vet, you may or may not have seen, sometimes your dogs get vaccinated with a vaccine dripped in their nose. So this is the intranasal vaccination. Yeah, it makes sense if you have, let's say, a respiratory virus, and then you give a vaccine the same way through respiration that seems to be better than, let's say, a respiratory virus that you'd inject someone instead with. The, the delivery mechanism, if it matches the, the way in which the animal would normally get sick, I know rabies right. would be harder, it's probably a bite, but maybe right. there's a, um, like, you know how they test for allergies, maybe there's a, a skin puncturing method that doesn't necessarily go into the bloodstream where you can administer a vaccine and match, you know, how the, the animal or the person gets sick with the method of vaccination. Absolutely, Richard, you hit the, the nail on the head. That is, depends on your passage, that the things you get, right? So in the case of respiratory infection, so you would imagine if we have immunity at the very site of entry of your passage, and in this case, we're developing a COVID vaccine for human now using an intranasal delivery system that will have presumably better outcome in terms of protection against the respiratory infection. So that's in a roundabout way, kind of explain where we started doing intranasal vaccination development. And it didn't really, you know, just started because of the COVID. We have been working on this platform for God knows like 20 years now. So we have been making, making really good progress. We're very excited about. What have been some of the challenges? You said 20 years, a long time. So what's oh, been the difficulty so far? Yeah, so I'm the first person who actually, first of all, developed a method to allow us to manipulate the virus. Because the virus, the vector system, like I said, is different from ours, is from, say, endovirus. So I, as you know, endovirus is made up of genomic material such as DNA. So DNA is something it's easier for people to manipulate. You can change them, you can splice, you can put them together. But the virus we're working with, the vector system called the parainfluenza virus 5, it's made of RNA. So it was really difficult to make um, RNA virus from scratch. So about 20-some years ago, I was the one who actually came up with a method to allow us to manipulate the genome of this particular virus. So once we have that tool, then we can say, all right, we'd like to modify this particular vector system. And using this tool I developed and, and try it on to see how it works. Yeah, what are the lab techniques by which you could modify a virus? Do you have to modify a cell that a virus would infect? 
and then it transmits the genetic material to the virus? Or how do you directly modify a virus? Yes, that's actually the, the key thing, right? So the really what, what I did was I developed what's this called a reverse genetic system. Essentially, we reverse engineered RNA genome of the virus. So allow us to essentially put things we like into the virus as we desire. So for instance, in the case of developing a COVID vaccine, what we can do, we can take a COVID virus, an antigen, you know, a piece of you know, SARS-CoVid-2, put it into our virus, and allow our virus to deliver this antigen to the host, which in this case, a human, and allow the vaccine to be recognized by the human immune system, essentially to train our human immune system to make us get ready for the real thing, which is the sauce in COVID-2. How do you create the mechanism of delivery? Oh. Just like inhalation versus injection, but literally, how do you modify, let's say, if you did an adenovirus to carry a payload that you want or any other virus? How do you do that? That's, it's a very good question. So our case, as I mentioned earlier, the virus genome, PRV5's genome, is made of RNA, right? So we, as I mentioned earlier, RNA is very difficult to manipulate. So what we did was we turned this RNA into cDNA, means like exactly the copy of your RNA, but it's in the DNA base now. Now, because we can manipulate the DNA, right? So we can cut the DNA and then put it in SARS-CoV-2 antigen into this piece of DNA. And then from DNA, then we can put it into a cell. And then this cell will produce a live virus that is that contains the RNA genome of our virus, PIV5, as well as the genomic material encoding the antigen of SARS-CoV-2. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. So what is this uh, particular inhalable treatment going to look or an inhalable vaccine going to look like? Like, how do you create it? How is it administered? You know, anything proprietary, obviously, you can't say it, but what can you say about it? How does it work? Right. So we have generated this vaccine. We call it CVXJ1, J1 for Georgia 1. And it is a live virus based on the genome system we have called the parainfluenza virus 5, which is you know, derived from a Kennel-Cough vaccine component. And then this is a virus and this vaccine contains the spike protein, the full-length spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. And so the package that, the, as you point out, the payload is the full-length spike protein from so SARS-CoV-2 virus. Okay. I mean, which SARS-CoV-2 virus? There's, oh, uh, yes. I think there's, there's a yeah. tremendous variation. Yes. Yes. So, so how, do you, how do you make this? How do you choose? We used the original one. And the reason is 
um, when we, of course, when we started, the original one is uh, was available. And what's really interesting about our vector system, as I point out, is made of a live virus, right? So live virus does something really good. And besides, you know, we are using this um, intranasal route, right? So compared with said injection, we will have what you call the mucosal immunity because you get, you know, into the nose, you will have mucosal surface, and then we will have mucosal immunity. Also, because our virus, our vaccine actually will replicate inside the host. Because as a result, we have a very good T cell response. So what that means is that we have two arms of immune response. One of the antibody, one is the T cell. So there were many research now has done to look at the T cell response. You know, as you know, the S protein can generate antibody response. The antibody response changes depends on the S protein you have or the virus you have, right? So you, you have a variance. And I don't believe you have antibody made of from original one. They're not going to work very well against the variance, right? It turned out the T cell response and the T cell, what you call it, the apotope, the signal for T cell response are very consistent. They have like more than 80% conserve among all different variants. So what that means is that even we are using the original S protein, the T cell response we generated by our vaccine will be still robust enough to provide protection against the variants. And so we have already done an experiments in, in laboratory with animals, of course, in this case, that our vaccine is very effective against variants challenge. For instance, you know, the same as we use from original one can protect hamster, for instance, and that's infected with Delta, which is very, very divergent from original S. Again, what are some of the challenges instead of injecting a vaccine, inhaling it? What, what in particular needs to change so that it works this way? Well, so for us, actually, I would argue in our vector system, because it came from a respiratory pathogen or infectious agent, right? So we call it natural bone intranasal vaccine, because remember, we used the vaccine, we used the backbone, the vector came from kennel cough vaccine. And the kennel cough is an intranasal vaccine to begin with. So for us, that really the challenge to develop this vector really is because it's novelty, because no one never in human history has tried until us to use this vector system in human directly. So that's where the challenge came from. So as you mentioned, the antivirus, antivirus has been used by people for vaccine development for many, many years. So people are familiar with. So all viral vector system, and even we have seen it, when your dogs get vaccinated, we have used this virus, right? And the dogs actually can shed this vaccine for a few days. But no one as a human has not been able to use this vector system for vaccine development. And as I point out, really is because we didn't have the technology to manipulate the genome of this viral vector. So I developed this system about 20 some years ago now, but then we are moving forward with this vector system and because it's novel. And, then, and for me, it's kind of exciting, right? Something new. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You mentioned mucosal immunity, which thank God right. we have, but what are the physical constraints now that you can create the vector you can modify the virus right what's the problem with the administration of it to make it effective or not well we don't really have any 
impediment from us using it, right? Is we, what we have to do right now is to do clinical trial because we never tried this in human. And you know, animal data, like monkey data look fabulous, but until we tried in human to say it works in human, we wouldn't be able to move forward, right? So right now we have been, you know, doing clinical trial in human and it looks good. And, and we hope to, you know, this is just a phase one trial. So it's safe. And then we're going to do phase two trial to see, you know, um, more safety testing and efficacy, right? To see how well, it, you know, it generates immunity. And hopefully we'll get into the phase three trial very soon. And then in the future, instead of doing the injection, then you will have an option to do a nasal spray. And you just get something spray in your nose. Yeah, question here. If I've got like, you know, five monkeys in my lab, I administer this to one of them. You mentioned not only will they shed it to the other ones, but just the aerosolization of this method of uh, delivery. If you have a monkey or a person or whatever that's already had this administered to them, and now they're in the vicinity of other monkeys or people that are getting it, would they not get an overload of it over time? Like they would, they would continually be stimulated, I would think, more than an injection. Because yeah. again, the that's, uh, that's, yes, 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 that's it. That's a very, very good question. That whether in situation of a monkey, right, they may shed a virus, and uh, whether you know, say in a, a family, if you immunize one person, would they shed the virus? Other person get immunized as well, because you know the the shedding will not happen for over for for long time, right? At the most, you say you will have the people release and shed the virus for maybe seven days at the most right, during that time. So we don't know the answer, to be honest with you. Of course, if that happens, it will make the vaccine very effective, right? We can just, uh, like I said- No, it may be an over, you know, maybe too much. I mean, what if, again, someone in a family gets, they come home, someone's already sick and it affects them negatively. Or, you know, let's say there's five people in a family, one gets it, then the next, then the next, they don't all do it at the same time. Now the fifth person has been exposed a whole bunch of times to vaccine shedding. Now they get it. Maybe they have an overload and they don't cope properly. It right. seems like you could have, uh, you know, effects on other creatures, which could be problematic. So that's a good question. So the one of the, the clinical trial we're doing right now is just a monitor. Is this just a monitor to see whether intranasal vaccine will shred in the people who are, you know, immunized, right? So we don't have really any evidence in human it shred the the vaccine. So. That kind of alleviates the concern you have. Have people looked to see if there is shedding in people, or they, is this an assumption, or has it been studied? We have clinical trial. We have not seen shedding. Okay, I know with with virus itself, it's not like the shedding just drops off to zero on day eight. I would think the profile would go down and down and down, whether it's exponential or linear. But right, this still would occur. But it's kind of odd. Why would there be no shedding from uh, you know from this administration, but they would be shedding from a natural infection? We're talking about the dogs, right? In those situation, right? This is a dog virus. That's not. Then we did in human, as you know. When you move virus from one host to another, there is a difference in terms of their replication profile, right? So in this case, it sheds in the dogs, and it does not shed in human. At least we have no evidence of that yet. And again, this is what the questions we're going to answer during the clinical trial, right? Because we designed specifically to answer the question you have, that is, would vaccine shed? And But in general, though, when it does shed, it, we want to make sure it's safe, right? You know, there's one vaccine that's intranasal administrated in human right now that's approved by FDA. It's called a flu mist, right? So 
I, I don't know, are you familiar with the flu mist? So this is a flu vaccine that instead of getting an injection, you get a spray into the nose. And this vaccine, go, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm listening. I just said, hmm, yeah. okay, interesting. Right. So this vaccine actually shed for about 20 days. And, and it's been used and approved by USD and FDA to be safe. And again, if you get the second dose, essentially you get a natural boost of your vaccination, right? So if the vaccine itself is safe, that you know, getting the second dose probably is not a, it's a good thing. Because then you get, it's safe for the recipient or safe for the other creatures that are around the recipient? Right. So for other creatures around the recipient, like I said, you divide into human as well as an animal, right? So before you go to human, we have done all the safety studies say, in animal. Like, for instance, all vaccine, you have to look to see if it's, say, you come in contact with a cat, the dogs, et cetera. We know they're very safe, right? So we would not worry about shedding going into other um animal basically so then what you're suggesting is say hey if like um five of us in the family you know we one of got the first and one got the say two days or two weeks later what if we shed right well can we shed into one and each other right in that case what we end up doing is we're boosting each other right so we're getting the second dose well, maybe it, it depends if the person that's getting it has already had it or not and if they've gotten it from multiple people over time are they getting it at a point where they're being infected with the virus anyway? Are they getting it when they're actively sick? Are they getting it when they've recovered? I mean, all these things I would think would modulate things big time. You know, what if someone has an autoimmune condition and now they're around people that have gotten this and it affects them negatively because they're immune compromised? You know, let's say I've had an organ transplant and I'm on immunosuppressive drugs and my wife gets this, you know, this nasal uh, vaccine. Mm -hmm. And because she's around me, she sheds and I get very sick. Right. I mean, so it seems I, like it's just a very difficult thing to quantify what, what happens or not. Right. But in those situations, again, number one, we have to look at the shedding of the virus, right? And I can and say we don't have any evidence the virus is shed in human, right? And here, but, and here's a question. So, like, let's say it's a respiratory virus like this, okay? So I get the nasal spray and I right. have some reaction. I start coughing and, you know, for a day or two, I feel sick, I right. chills. Well, if I'm coughing and if I'm sneezing, and there's a respiratory virus, I would think there's an incredibly high chance that I am going to be shedding not only virus, but I'm going to be shedding back out this, uh, you know, mucosally administered vaccine too. Right. I don't know if there's any way around that. It just, you know, I don't know. Right. I, I think in that case, as I pointed out, you know, this vaccine, the backbone has been used in dogs for 40 years now, right? So if you have dogs, your dogs has already been shedding this virus into your environment, into your cats, into anything comes close to it. And we would have known by now the virus that's shedded by the dogs causing disease in human, right? So we have no evidence of that. So there are about 40% of Americans have dogs. Hold me on that the number. I think maybe at one time or another, you know. Uh, of American have pets like dogs, right? So if you have dogs, you would have, you know, taking your dogs to vet to be vaccinated. So your dogs have been intranasally vaccinated by this vaccine already. So Okay, but what about the uh, same creature, so person to person though, not necessarily person to dog, but person to person. Again, if my, you know, if my wife or husband or whatever it is gets this, and then let's say my kids get it, and then I'm last in line in my family, you know, again, I, I guess that would be boosted, but uh, I don't know. I just don't know if there'd be any adverse right. effects if 
the yeah. people around me have already gotten it. Or let's say I work at, you know, ABC company and mm-hmm. I'm one of the last people to get this done and 40 of my coworkers have gotten it, then what? Yeah. Right. Like, number one, like I said, because the, so when we modify this virus, right? So it is a further weakened than the vaccine that's used in dogs because it carries a payload, as you know, it, it got more, you know, than the original um, virus and itself. So it's going to be further attenuated, number one. Number two, like I said, the virus sheds in dogs, right? That's the natural host, we assume. And then it may not shed in human. And when it's further attenuated, it may not shed in human at all, right? So and at this point, we may not see shedding of this vaccine at all, right? And as I go back to the point, they say if in your family, that if you never had a dog, you know, pets, and then you may never have been exposed to this virus before, right? I mean, that's your worry about it, I understand. But for the people, say, a metal study, like look at the large number of people who have been come into contact with the dogs that are shedding viruses for the past 40 years, right? And some of them, I'm sure, are uh, immunocompromised, and some of them may have autoimmune disease, etc. right? So they have come into contact with this virus, through their dogs before they have never gotten sick from this virus. And that, again, it is a good indication the virus will be very safe. But nonetheless, as a vaccine developer, our number one concern is safety. That's why we're doing clinical trial monitoring. If we put this virus in human, would human shed virus just like dogs, right? And I'm saying that at this point, we have no evidence human sheds the virus, sheds the vaccine right now right um okay are you going to be allowed to study data from injectable vaccines or you know let's say SARS-CoV-2 versus your nasal administration you know to compare the efficacy and all that are you going to be allowed to do that or does yours just have to stand on its own and again how could there be a preference for one or the other or you know how could any governing body say oh this one's worked better than the other this one's recommended or not yeah i think that's a really really good question so when we design clinical trial, I mean, we would love to design a trial that do a head-to-head comparison, right? But in this case, you really need to get other companies, the other companies to agree with you. And more than not, they would not say yes to do it. Because if, let's face it, if ours is better, we're going to say they are terrible, right? If theirs is better, we probably don't say anything and just disappear, right? So they feel like there's no win for them. So what happened is what we're going to do is we're going to design a uh, phase three trial to look at the efficacy, right? So in this particular case, I think the FDA were involved. They would say, hey, this is a good design. Go ahead and look at the efficacy, right? So in those cases, we will look at the uh, efficacy as a defined, do we prevent uh, severe disease or do we prevent infection? And what's the rate of people who are getting this vaccine that has uh, adverse reaction, right? And do we see any kind of impact on, say, people who are immunocompromised? who have a different kind of genetic makeup, so to speak, right? So there are all those questions. We're going to do clinical trial to make sure the vaccine we have is safe and efficacious. And then with those data, then we say, okay, we now know after doing, say, 40,000 people in a phase three trial, our vaccine is good at A, B, C, D, you know? So, and then you... Of course, there are one of the things for the intranasal vaccine that works really well actually is prevent transmission and at least reduce transmission of the virus. And as you know, um, current vaccine worked really well in preventing severe diseases, but there's very little data 
to say they're preventing infection, thus they're not really preventing the transmission. So you can, you know, you get vaccinated, you still get infected, and then you're still shedding SARS-CoV-2 viruses, right? What our vaccine, we hope, can do is that actually not only we can protect you from getting severe disease, hopefully getting milder disease, most importantly, we can actually prevent you get infected to begin with. So this way, or prevent you from shedding a lot of virus. So you can, once you get vaccinated, your family will be protected, not just you, right? So that's the advantage we have. And if we do enough experiment, we will find out basically say, hey, you know, when Richard, you got vaccinated and then you, even you kind of had some brief infection and like a low level of fever, et cetera, it turned out you didn't really transmit the virus to the rest of your family, right? So that means that the vaccine did its job, does its job in preventing transmission, which is really a vaccine that's needed right now, in my opinion, not just preventing severe disease, but hopefully preventing infection and transmission, because right now the virus is endemic and we really need to find a way to reduce infection rate. And this is where I think the the intranasal vaccine it has this advantage because as you pointed out early, you know, we got the mucosal surface that we want to prevent an infection, you know, at the respiratory site for uh, SARS-CoV-2. Well, very good. Yeah, where can people find out more about your work and keep tabs? Right. So we have a clinical trial, and if you're interested, you can go to the go look at clinical trial website. So our trial oh, clinical clinicaltrials.gov or where? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Clinicaltrial.gov. So we have called the CVX GA1 vaccine. If you want, there is a trial identifier called NCT04954287. So anything we do, we have to disclose in that particular site. So it's a government website. And it, it tells you what we're doing and what's our progress in this clinical trial. Very good. And yeah, where can people go to find out more about your work in general? Do you have a website through oh, yes. the university or where can they go? Yes, yes. The, the university and we have a website. And I guess if you just Google my name, B-I-A-O-H-E-U-G-A, let me see the what's the website. I should be better prepared. <laughs> yes, I have. Oh, a, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. So yes, at the... University of Georgia College of Veterinary Medicine, there is a website with me and you can find more about me and our, our work, etc. Well, very good, Biao. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time and stimulating conversation. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.